As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. You are listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and over this third series, Alistair and I will be looking at some of the key themes and ideas in the Narnia Chronicles. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. On today's episode, we will be focusing on the silver chair. Alistair, we're going to be talking about the silver chair today. And um, we sort of touched on this a little bit in the previous book. But why do you think Lewis is so unimpressed with the ethos at Experiment House, the school that Eustace and Jill goes to? Well, I think, again, uh, Lewis is saying this is trendy. This is the way some people think. But actually, it's just completely misguided and it's typical of the loss of direction which um, is typical of his day and age and Lewis in many ways is is a very strong exponent of a classical vision of education and feels that that's the way we ought to be going and so Lewis is making a criticism basically expecting most of his readers to say we're with you on this that actually there's a feeling that this is just not good but again one of the key points is Lewis wants you to feel sorry for Eustace and Jill what hope is there for them if they're (laughs) educated in this way And do you think he modelled it on a particular school or organisation or sort of theory at the time, or is it just a general point that he's making? I think um, he may have had something in mind. We don't know what it is, but what we certainly know is that during this period in British culture, there are all kinds of experimental, innovative approaches to education, which Lewis felt was simply completely misguided. So I think he's really just making an important point here. And is Lewis making a dig at politics when he says at the end that the head, the head teacher sort of went on to become an inspector and then she went on into politics? And it says when she when they found out she wasn't much good, even at that, they got her into Parliament where she lived happily ever after. Is he trying to say something about Parliament, about politics in that? Yes, he, he's expressing the view that Parliament is where no hopers go um, and really saying, look, look, we, we don't need good people there. There are much more important things they need to do. So I think you can see there a certain cynicism about um, the parliamentary process. <laughs> We talked in one of the previous episodes about the sort of different types of magic and and the ways that magic can be used. Why is Lewis so keen to kind of differentiate Aslan from these other types of magic? So uh, Eustace talks about the kind of thinking that drawing circles is rather rot. 
Um, and he says, I don't think Aslan would like them. So, so why is there such a keenness to kind of differentiate Aslan from these other types of magic? I think that um, one of the themes that Lewis addresses in some of his writings about the Renaissance is that there are different kinds of magic. There's a magic that people use in order to benefit themselves or to take control over people. And then the forms of magic you might use to make the world a better place or to help other people. And Lewis is clearly very, very hostile to any idea of using um, charms or spells to entrap people or to, to elevate yourself. But with Aslan, we're talking about the creator, the one who actually brought this place into existence, who therefore has the right to kind of way direct it the way in which it goes. So if you like, it's a special kind of magic. He's able to do certain things because he has the right to do them. And of course, we know he does them for the good of the creatures. So there's a very strong moral and theological element here. And the initiative very much comes from him, doesn't it, rather than people sort of trying to... Very much so. It, it, it's not about people saying, hey, Aslan, do this for us. It's mm -hmm. much more Aslan trying to move his people and his creation in the right direction. Now, we don't often see Aslan appear as early as we do in this book, particularly to an unknown character, to Jill, who at this point we don't really know that much about. Why is Lewis so keen, do you think, to bring in this key protagonist so soon? Um, it's not really <clears throat> explained in the text, but I'm going to have to tell you what I think about this. I think that this is very much akin to the um, idea of an Old Testament figure being called by God without the kind of background you might expect. So you might think of David, who was a younger son, being called, or you might think of the young Samuel being called in a very unexpected way. In other words, um, God draws close to people without the traditional pattern of preparation. And maybe that's what Lewis is hinting at here. Uh, again, it's very hard to be sure, but that, that seems to me to be the way in which um, Lewis wants to move the story along. And what did he want Jill to know about himself? What, what does Lewis want Jill to know about Aslan? Well, I guess the key theme is that whether Jill realises this or not, she has needs, she has problems, and Aslan is able to do something about those. So it's very much this idea that Aslan is the fulfilment of the heart's desire. In other words, it's almost as if, um, and put it like this, that um, Jill is coming from a, a background which is completely unchurched. It's, it's outside that. In fact, it, she comes from an environment that's hostile to that. And yet, even in that context, Aslan is able to meet her and move her on. So that seems to me to be Lewis, in effect, saying that there is hope that even those who do not have a traditional religious upbringing or religious education or any kind of contact, you know, God is able to meet with them and move them on, despite the absence of what might seem to be an appropriate background. Why do you think Aslan evokes such honesty in Jill straight away? So when he asks why she was playing so near the edge, she's really honest and says, I was showing off, sir. Is that something that Lewis is keen to tell us about? I mean, what, what does he want us to take from that, do you think? Well, Lewis, I think, is in effect um, depicting this encounter as uh, almost something like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where 
um you know there's a surprisingly honest dialogue between them and maybe this is exactly what's happening here that there's something about aslan that enables jill to be extraordinarily honest about herself maybe maybe actually realizing things about herself that she didn't know to be true you know maybe, maybe she didn't actually realize that um she was showing off but suddenly the presence of aslan makes her realize that so i think this is this capacity of aslan to bring out the depths of people something about him now, there's lots of elements in this story that are pretty dark, pretty scary for children. Um, but there's also some humour. So Trumpkin sort of purpose, well, not purposefully, but, but mishears Eustace's name as useless. And there's a few sort of funny play on words. Is that because there was so much dark stuff that Lewis was kind of keen to lighten the tone in places, do you think? Well, I think um, there's humour throughout um, Narnia, and I think in this novel there needs to be quite a lot of humour to kind of way make it more bearable. Mm. So Lewis may just have felt he needed to soften the tone or, or make it easier to read at this point. I mean, if we look at some of the, the wordplay, the Parliament of Owls, I mean, for example, that, that's clearly picking up on Chaucer's idea in the 14th century of a Parliament of Fowls. You know, you can see where he's going with that. So it's entertaining. Um, I think it's to lighten the tone. I, I, I don't see these um, the, this wordplay as really um, really moving the plot along. I think it's, it's really there to kind of way keep the readers um, on, on Lewis's side. Well, let's talk about Puddle Glum, because in many ways, parts of his character are, are really comical, quite funny. Um, but he's not just comical, is he? There's so many um, facets to his character. Well, even his name is comical. I think, I think, and Lewis intended that. But I think maybe Lewis is just making a, a very obvious point, which is that um, there may be a superficial comedy to someone, but actually beneath the surface, there's a lot more. And that, that bringing that out and transforming it actually is, is a very important part of what Aslan is all about. So I, I do think there's, there's an important point here. It's, it's very much about going beneath the surface and seeing what very often lies beneath that surface. And Puddle Glum is often the one who's reminding these children of the important truths, you know, that Aslan's instructions always work. There are no exceptions. He's often the one who is got a kind of healthy distrust of like the lady in dazzling green, the giants. Do, do you think Lewis is hinting at discipleship in this relationship where he's in some senses discipling the children? Well, it's quite possible. I, I think that um, we might go back to that comment we were, we were looking at at the beginning of this discussion about, um, you know, the educational techniques of Lewis's day. And, and these were in saying, forget the past. And one of the things that Lewis is saying is, no, we need to remember the past, because in the past, there are some very important things. There's the, the cross, there's the resurrection. And of course, there, there's the need to remember these things and make them part of our lives. So you could say that Puddle Glum, in many ways, is a model of a kind of trusting belief in Aslan that realizes the importance of, um, of remembering certain things, bearing them in mind and living them out. Do you think there's anything to be said for there being a kind of pseudo parental relationship between P Puddle Glum and the children, which, as we've said before, there doesn't seem to be many parental relationships within the Narnia stories? Yes, I mean, I mean, there are points in which um, he almost seems to act in a parental role. And um, as you 
say, you know, that the parents are markedly absent from Narnia. Um, and it may well be that Lewis's own rather complex relationship with his father, you know, may, may reflect this. But certainly Puddleglum does seem to function almost as a parental figure, you know, someone who's there as a figure of wisdom and guidance, which is what you'd normally hope your own parents would do for you. But actually, Puddleglum is doing it for others. There's a speech that Puddleglum makes about suppose we have only dreamed or made up all of these things uh, and made up Aslan himself. You know, it, it's quite a long sort of quote. But but what do you make of what he's saying there? What what did Lewis want us to take from some of the things that Puddleglum is saying in that sentence? Uh, that's a very powerful sentence, which comes quite late in the book. And, and in many ways, what Puddleglum is saying is, look, um, you are telling us that what we see around us is the only world, that, that what you see is what you get. But he's saying, look, we have a little story. We, we remember it. It's an important story. And it is so much better than what you are telling us and what you are presenting with us. So where has the story come from? Supposing we just made it up. It, even so, it, it is much better than anything you've told us. And here's the thing. It's right. It's true. There is an Aslan. And so actually, it's almost as if uh, Lewis is teasing out this really important point, which is that uh, the Christian faith is not just about telling us the way the world is. It's about tuning into something really deep within us in terms of our intuitions, our desires, and saying, you know, you need something. And what you see around you does not deliver, but the story we are telling you does. It points to the one who's able to do this. And so Puddleglum is actually articulating some very important theology in that speech. And does it come back to, do you think, again, that idea of the most compelling story that actually not only is it true, as you say, but it's much more compelling. It's, it's much more vibrant. It's more imaginative. It's better than you could ever think it, it could be. I think that um, throughout Narnia, we have this constant question, which story do we trust? And which storyteller do we trust? And, and again and again and again, people are saying, well, well I can't work out. Is it, is it that or is it this? Is it this person, that person? And you tend to go by the quality of the story. How does it chime in with what I believe to be right and uh, what I long for? And also the reliability of the storyteller. You know, do I think I can trust this person. And I think that Puddleglum actually comes across very strongly on both counts. I mean, I mean, he's clearly, uh, you know, an interesting character, but nevertheless, a trustworthy person. And he's saying something very important here. And I think that, you know, we can say that this aspect of Lewis's thought is really important, because what we need to do is to realize it's not simply that there is something about Christianity that's very, very powerful, that actually, the way in which we present it, and the quality of our lived lives, are able to witness to this and that that's a point which i think we need to bring out that actually lewis is making the point throughout this novel that you need to keep the memory of aslan alive who's going to do that answer people who know and love him and they need to talk about him so that he remains a part of the present culture i think that's a very important point to bring out well, that links into the fact that actually Jill it says that she gave up her habit of repeating the signs over to herself every night. In some senses, as you say, she forgot the memory of Aslan. Do you think Lewis is uh, hinting at the importance of spending regular time with God? Is that what he's trying to say through that encounter? 
I th- I'm sure that's part of it, but I think there is something deeper. Um, it's going back to the beginning of our conversation. It's about the culture trying to suppress memories it finds unhelpful. And in trying to suppress those memories, it really is denying the significance of anything in the past, including the life, death and resurrection of Christ. What I think we see Lewis bringing out here is the importance of remembering that past and insisting it be retold in the present. So we see here, I think Lewis saying not simply, look, um, you know, the signs matter. It's actually talking about these things in the present so they are not forgotten. It's a principled refusal to allow our culture to suppress the memories that we think are important because a past memory is a present reality. It's about keeping the reality of God in our culture at the present. Is the underland full of sad earthmen an allegory for something in this world or is it just a kind of depiction of of evil in general and the power that evil can have over people do you think i think the the underland this uh, this kingdom where basically um we have people who are sad and trapped there is actually a very powerful allegory for for certain modern visions of education which lewis wanted to criticize and basically it's saying the important thing is just to make sure we keep each other alive and we don't want to do anything more than that and lewis is really protesting about that and saying no no we need to have a vision something really exciting that gives us purpose and meaning and keeps us going in life so i think there is something there but again i think also there is this awareness of the importance of entrapment now throughout the narnia chronicles we have this theme of entrapment you know slavery or whatever it is in this case it is about being constricted in a limiting vision of reality it's in fact saying look what you see is what you get there's nothing more to reality than what's around us and then there are those who are prophets who say no no there is more we know there's more and we can take you to the place where you will find it and lewis is saying please keep on saying that because otherwise we'll lose that vision do you think when puddle glum says there are no accidents our guide is aslan that lewis is espousing some sort of determinism or is he just reminding people that god is ultimately in charge even if it doesn't look like that I don't think Lewis is into determinism. I think Lewis is into something else, which is whatever happens can be made to be useful and good. In other words, um, uh, if we think what I think Lewis may have here, the idea of vocation, what should I do with my life? What am I meant to be doing? Uh, you know, I, do I make mistakes? Do I have accidental detours from the path I'm meant to be taking? I think what Lewis is saying really is, look, um, you know the important thing is you follow Aslan wherever he takes you and along the way you try to make the best of each and every situation which arises so I think it's much more about God's ability to transform us and the possibilities we face as we journey along life's way in other words you're not necessarily meant to be there or there but whether you end up there or there you can do something good because God will enable you to do something and move things along 
Jill has the amusing line where she says, where I come from, they don't think much of men who are bossed about by their wives. I mean, clearly Lewis isn't speaking from personal experience because he's not married at the time that he writes The Silver Chair. But is he offering some sort of social commentary there about marriage, about wives? I think he is. I think that uh, from Lewis's letters, we can probably figure out who some of the people he has in mind might be. Um, you know, some of his fellow dons at Morden College in Oxford, for example, he, he tended to think of as being rather, uh, rather dominated by the wives. Um, and actually, what's really interesting is that some of the people who Lewis treats with greatest respect actually are unmarried, particularly um, those who've gone to religious orders, who he treats with kind of a special respect. But I think in many ways, Lewis is just expressing a cultural a cultural norm of his day, that actually there was this dominant trend for married males to portray their wives as kind of way intrusive or dominating or a nuisance. <laughs> Prince Rillian calls Jill a brave lady. And, and as we've already seen throughout the whole of the Narnia Chronicles, there are lots of brave young female characters. But why is Lewis keen to make Jill, who we really know nothing about, one of the key heroes of this story, do you think? Well, I think what Lewis is doing here is introducing a new character. This is someone who we haven't met before. And it's someone who Aslan, in effect, speaks to, and if you like, almost commissions. And then we see Jill um, doing this. Now, I mean, there are many things we could say about this. Is this Lewis exploring the idea that God chose not just the Jews, but the Gentiles? In other words, those who are outside the loop, so to speak, and being able to use them? Or what's he doing here? But he, he, it seems to be, he seems to be saying that God is able to take people who are outside the traditional norms or expectations of being people who love God and call them and use them powerfully. And I think that what Lewis is really doing here is to say that God is able to take people from very unpromising backgrounds and do things with them. Now, he may be thinking of the conversion of Paul, or he may be thinking of some of his friends who, like G.K. Chesterton, who didn't know, but he read his books, um, who in effect came from agnosticism to faith and really achieved some very significant things. So it's, it's quite possible he's trying to get across the idea that God is able to unexpectedly choose certain people and do great things in them and through them. Now, do you think any of the enchantments that the witch places on um, on the children and on Puddleglum and, and, and on the prince to stop them from leaving, are they meant to represent anything specific in Lewis's mind, do you think? Well, I wonder if um, some of the um, images he uses, like, for example, this apparently soporific effect of certain things in the underground region um, is intended to convey Lewis's general um, idea that Western culture on the whole is moving away from its Christian roots and as a result is, is in effect um, either casting aspersions on faith which are difficult to deal with or is trying to create the illusion that there is no need to even think about these things. And I think maybe what Lewis is doing here is simply to say we need to be aware that we are in a cultural context which is not neutral but is trying to move in certain directions and we need people to speak out and speak up and challenge this and that's why i think puddle glum is so important puddle glum in effect is willing to say you know it's not it's not like this we've got a much better story to tell and making sure that that story is heard 
Now, just when you think the story has sort of all been made right, Prince Rillian's father, King Caspian, dies. Um, we know from the last battle, which we're going to speak about next, that this isn't quite the end of the story. But why do you think um, Lewis includes that? It feels like quite a sort of negative end to the story. What, what do you think? What, what were you to make of that? Um, I've often wondered that. And my feeling is that it, if you like, is it is forcing the reader to say things have suddenly gone wrong and this isn't going to end here, is it? Some, something is going to happen after this. It, if you like, it's anticipatory. It's saying something is going to happen in the next novel you need to know about. In my spare time, I sometimes think, I wonder what happened if Lewis had transferred that to the beginning of the final novel, which is The Last Battle, because it might have worked better there in one sense. But then how would this novel have ended? I think it would have ended kind of way, almost almost by fading fading away. But what we're left with is the situation's changed. What's going to happen? And we're left wondering what is going to happen. So if you like, it's drawing us in to the next narrative and making us want to know what happens next. And what do you think he's hinting at in Aslan's blood turning Prince Caspian, King Caspian, back into a young boy rather than keeping him as an older man? Yes, I, I've often wondered about that. Um, might it be rejuvenation of vision? In other words, that uh, it is a physical depiction of a rekindling of your vision of God, which inspires you to do great things. Or is it saying that actually Christianity does something to you, which means you will never die? You know, there, there are all kinds of things there. But I have to say, I've never been entirely sure what point Lewis is trying to make there. Well, we're going to find out more about it not being the end of the story in the next episode. But Alistair, thank you so much. It's been great fun. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. Next week, we will be looking at The Last Battle. <laughs>